Welcome to the Inclusive Growth Show with Toby Milden. Future-proofing your business by creating a diverse workplace. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Inclusive Growth Show. I am Toby Milden. I'm joined by a fantastic guest today. Uh, His name is Peter Cheese. He is the Chief Executive of the CIPD, which is the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development. And the CIPD is the professional body for HR and people development. So, Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you, Toby. It's good to be on. Great. So, I actually interviewed you uh, for my book, Inclusive Growth, where we, we had a great conversation. Where do you think diversity and inclusion um, has been over the last couple of years? And what progress do you think has been made in DNI? I think the, the sort of quick summary is that diversity and inclusion definitely has made progress in recent years. There's been so much more discussion and focus on it. In organizations, I think, of, of all sizes and obviously increasing legislation and so forth. So there's definitely been progress. I think the real challenge to us all is, has it been enough? And I think the answer to that is not. You can look at, of course, diversity across many different protected characteristics. And in, in, even if we take the simplest one, which is around gender, Yes, there's been progress, and you can look at it from lots of different aspects. Obviously, the push on things like more gender balance at the tops of companies, uh, the gender pay gap reporting, and so forth, which is really trying to be encouraging, in some cases provoking organizations to think much more about gender balance. And I think the language and dialogue has changed, but the, the, the sad fact is the progression of numbers in terms of even if I take gender balance has arguably not been fast enough. Uh, and then, of course, if you go into other aspects of diversity, ethnic diversity, different abilities, experiential diversity, so social mobility, for example, still real challenges in terms of progress. And I think the things that constrain us, and it's interesting also to reflect on these as, as we you know, talk about the crisis we're in at the moment, have been cultural. They've been lots of sort of mindset shifts that have had to happen. But also, I think... Uh, have we had the right insights, the right information? Because at the end of the day, as I've always said about diversity and inclusion, to me, you have to start with why this is really important for business. And there are lots of reasons why having inclusive workplaces is really important for business. You know, first of all, your access to all the skills and talent, knowing that innovation comes from different experiences and backgrounds, knowing that you want an organization that's properly reflecting the customers and societies and communities of which it is truly part. And those are very, very powerful drivers for inclusion. But also, you know, if we don't have the data and insights, as I said, if we're not really understanding either what is the makeup of our organizations today in terms of diversity or what are the inhibitors and accelerators for inclusion, all the way from recruitment and bias and all these other things and have we properly trained our managers, then we won't really make the progress that we need to. So as I said, I think in summary, yeah, but it's, it's been very encouraging to see in recent years so much more discussion about diversity and inclusion. It is a genuine business theme and topic, and it's certainly a very core cool one for our profession of HR. And we are seeing more regulation, as I said, but we still have some way to go. Absolutely. I mean, we're recording this podcast episode in, in lockdown for the coronavirus. We're recording it online, so we're using technology to our advantage. Uh, in fact, we, we may, I can hear the birds in the background where you are, and I'm recording this in my bedroom. 
So how do you think the coronavirus is affecting diversity and inclusion in businesses right now? Yeah, I mean, obviously a really important uh, question, Toby. I mean, the, I don't think it's any hyperbole to say that this crisis is, is an era-defining crisis. I mean, people have equated it in terms of the great era-defining crisis of the last century, like the Great Wars. Obviously, this is different in its form, but its, it's, it's impact could be as big you know, on societies, on economies, on jobs. Uh, and of course, it's, it's driven from you know, this global health pandemic. And, and whilst you know, you, everybody could say, well, it's very hard to predict, and it has been talked about as one of the greatest threats to humanity would be some kind of big health epidemic. And that's clearly what we're in the midst of. The health epidemic has, uh, and pandemic has led very, very quickly into a significant economic uh, challenge. Uh, we're already seeing massively uh, increased numbers of uh, people who are unemployed. And no matter what government subsistence schemes exist, that, that is, is continuing to be one of the impacts. And we know that it's going to drive an awful lot of uncertainty for some time to come in business behaviors. Now, what that means for diversity and inclusion, to be honest, I think is going to be challenging because when, when we see crises of any kinds, but particularly economic crises that affect businesses, then one of the first things that tends to happen, of course, is businesses can become more risk-averse. They go back to saying, right, I've just got to manage down my costs in order to maintain my profitability and short-term financial sustainability. And in doing those things, and of course, we're seeing businesses taking many, many actions in the moment around managing their costs. And of course, for the vast majority of businesses, their, their people costs are amongst their biggest costs and what they would tend to see as their most controllable costs. And the actions that organizations are taking do range from redundancies. Obviously, there are other mechanisms and channels like these furloughing schemes or, or putting people more onto part-time working or, or extending leave. I mean, all these sorts of mechanisms. But if they're only being driven from a cost dimension, then it is quite easy to lose sight of some other really important business imperatives. And sadly, I think that we are seeing too many stories of diversity and inclusion, therefore getting rather pushed to the side in the pursuit of just simply trying to manage down my costs. So what does that tell us? Well, first of all, what this crisis should tell us and what I fundamentally believe will emerge from it in positive ways are that the humanity, compassion, well-being, human-centered thinking will and must emerge from this even more profoundly. So whilst there's some very clearly some short-term challenges I've already uh, outlined. I think it really will cause a profound readjustment of what is important in business. Well, yes, of course, your financial stakeholder is important. But, oh, my goodness, your, your workforce as a stakeholder group is equally important. And those two things are not you know, diametrically opposed. If you look after your people effectively, if you create inclusive workplaces, as I've already said, then you can create very positive economic and business outcomes. So the idea of what's sometimes been called multi-stakeholder capitalism, which is the idea that businesses should not just be driven by maximizing profit for the sake of maximizing profit. They should be driven by, yes, of course, you have to financially be financially sustainable, but you must be doing it in the context of behaving ethically and responsibly, looking after your people properly, looking after your customers and suppliers properly, being part of a responsible business within communities that you're also part of. And let's not forget also that there was leading into this uh, health crisis was an environmental crisis as well. And that's another part of what a responsible business does is it looks after its environment. So 
I think what, as I said, we're seeing is is that on the positive side is absolutely the centrality of people, of their well-being, of our duty of care, and whether it's how we're operating to support people with their mental health, because, you know, let's face it, working in these ways in very much more confined environments is very challenging, particularly out without, you know, with all the constraints on our normal social connection. So mental health has got a much bigger focus at this time. And we need to carry these ideas forwards as positive learnings post the crisis. But to come back to, as I said, the inclusion theme, I think, yes, uh, I and others are worried that in this context of, oh, my goodness, I've got to manage down costs of my workforce, that we lose sight of inclusion. So, so what does that mean in the short term? And in the short term, it means that we must keep a diverse and inclusion lens on all the actions that we're taking. And if we are having to reduce working hours or even reduce the size of our workforces, let's, for heaven's sake, make sure that we're doing them through an inclusion lens and not, you know, unconsciously or otherwise, finding that we have reduced our workforce, but that has disproportionately affected certain parts of our workforce. So those are obvious things for us to think about. We also have to think about it coming out of the crisis as we begin to return to our workplaces. What are reasonable adjustments that we may need to make for all segments of our workforce, but particularly those who are more vulnerable? And that should be part of our duty of care to our employees and our workforces as well. So as I said, I think much as I described it coming into the uh, uh, crisis, this crisis will change many, many things. I think it will and can and must drive some positive outcomes as well. But we really, really have to watch out that in the, these very difficult intervening periods as we're going through the, the heart of the storm, as or the eye of the storm, as it were, that we do not lose sight of inclusion, that we understand that actions we're taking are being done through an inclusion lens, and that we can then reinforce many of these positive ideas about well-being, which have inclusion at their very heart, and what we need to make is reasonable adjustments and how we support all, all segments of our workforce should be outcomes that we, as I said, really do now push for uh, as we begin to look uh, at, the, at the upcoming weeks and months, which will be about some sort of staged return to perhaps some form of uh, new normals and, and, and workplace working. Yeah, because I've, I've been running a whole series of webinars for DNI leaders called um, DNI Leadership in a Crisis. And uh, I've developed this this kind of concept called inclusive response, inclusive regrowth. And what I'm saying is that um, as we're going into the economic downturn and we're dealing with the crisis, the role of a DNI leader has changed from DNI leader to inclusive crisis manager. And they need to be there to support the business to really focus on the business critical response. So if you're having to redirect a lot of employees to work from home, making sure that everybody has the ability to work from home in an inclusive way. Or if you are doing furloughing or making people redundant, making sure that you have that inclusive lens over it. But then the regrowth is as, as we go, you know, this could be a, a year and a half or two years from now, as, as, the, as the economy picks up again, and it will take another perhaps six, seven, eight years to, to get back up to, to the top, this is a really good opportunity for inclusion and diversity people to support the business to make sure that businesses are regrowing in an inclusive way. So it could be that some new innovations have come out, you know, and they they could do that inclusively. 
Yeah, no, they will. I mean, you yeah. know, there's this great expression of necessity being the mother of invention. And I think we're all having to adapt and learn and innovate very quickly in these circumstances. No, but I very much like the, the way the, the position it over because at, at the end of the day, we have to do better to describe any interventions that we're doing in the workforce uh, in the context that it is supportive of the business agenda, which is why you know, within our profession, as we're, you know, we teach and obviously accredit and so forth around HR capabilities, at the very heart of that is an understanding of business because HR and all the things we're talking about, including the diversity and inclusion, also needs to be seen as a business capability and a business function. So you, you then have to, and as you, exactly as you described, and I like the way you described it, you have to think of diversity and inclusion as part of a response to the crisis that businesses are facing. And it should be thought about in those terms. And that's very important because I think sometimes we have in the past be, fallen into the danger, not just of diversity and inclusion, but many subjects around you know, how you treat people positively and engagement and well-being and so forth, sometimes fallen a little bit too much in the trap. It can be seen as a, well, that's a sort of nice to have. It's all a bit pink and fluffy and it's all very sort of social and all of that. But how's it helping my business? Um, mm-hmm. And that's why, as I said, putting it into the context of business always is a really, really important thing we have to do. Yeah. I mean, some of my sort of hopes and predictions going forward is uh, I, I think that uh, men in business will want to take more of a caring responsibility because if they are um, in is- uh, sorry, not in isolation, if they are working from home with their family, they, they're maybe taking on more caring responsibilities at the moment. And uh, the research that business in the community has done suggests that that will help towards uh, closing the gender pay gap. So, um, Peter, why do you think that diversity and inclusion leaders and HR directors need to be talking more of the business language? I mean, this is something that we covered in the case study in in the book. Um, Why do they need to be speaking more of the business language? Yeah, so the other other aspect of what is really important, so we we link diversity and inclusion, of course, to financial sustainability and things of that nature, ability to attract and retain the right people. But there's also another really important part of it, which is brand and reputation. Um, The fact is, and I think, again, the crisis will reinforce this, that businesses that can show that they're inclusive, treat their people fairly, have organizations and workforces representing wider communities and so forth, will, will prosper. They will be held to account if they're not doing these things. So I think that's the other really important part of the inclusion debate is it is very much, in my mind now, linked to the idea of trust, of reputation, of businesses that are doing the right things. And that, again, I think will be very much emphasized through this crisis. And the businesses that will thrive and prosper are the ones that are inclusive, treating their people fairly and well, uh, worrying about the well-being and all these other things. And that will bring these ideas much more, again, to the center of the business debate. So I'm thinking about all those senior executives who are frantically trying to save their businesses and and just keep them going and still continuing to deliver products and services and and make sure that their employees are are safe and able to to still continue working but when it comes to dni what what do you think boardrooms should be doing to take responsibility for dni given the current environment that we're in i think they have to maintain hopefully what we were seeing more of which is this is part of what makes a good business, what makes a responsible business and so forth. So they should be holding the executive to account on are they 
continuing to maintain the ideas of inclusion? Can they demonstrate through how they report back to boards, you know, through the, the subcommittees, but to main board agendas about how an organization has responded through the crisis, what it's thought about in terms of its culture and how that shifted, how it's maintained these critical dimensions of things like inclusion. So I think, yes, it's tough, and you're absolutely right. There are many, many businesses which are in severe financial trouble and difficulty at this point in time. You're hearing stories in sectors like hospitality and, and tourism, things like that, where 80% plus of their, of their workforce have either been furloughed or made redundant. They're very, very tough times. But it, it does not mean to say that we should lose sight of the things that which we would all regard as important and we've already talked about. So I would say to any board that they should continue to talk about these issues of, of strong and inclusive corporate cultures, that if you do those things, that will maintain and sustain you as we come out of this, this crisis. And even if you've had to let people go, they will be the things which will allow you to attract the talents and skills that you need in your workforce and retain them in the future. So, of course, you should keep a focus on them. But it, it does come back then to our responsibilities, DNI practitioners and HR leaders and so forth, to make sure we have that lens on the organization, that we can continue to report back and encourage the dialogue at board levels of accountability that they should hold the executive of those organizations continually responsible for about these good and inclusive corporate cultures. Brilliant. So this is the Inclusive Growth Show. So what does inclusive growth mean for the CIPD? Yeah, for us, of course, we think about it in several dimensions. I mean, first of all, you know, really being part of and encouraging this wider de- debate about diversity and inclusion. And you know, Toby, you've spoken on our platforms. I speak on many, many different platforms about diversity and inclusion in all its different forms. So so continue to advocate and, and show the research and backing and policy and all these other things that we do on diversity and inclusion more broadly. Secondly, of course, teaching through the profession about what are good diversity and inclusion practices. And, and as we've you know, more recently launched our new profession map with all these sort of core skills and capabilities, thinking about things differently, and now developing all the new qualifications behind it, you know, be reassured that diversity and inclusion is a golden thread everything we teach, because I think that, again, has been part of the challenge of diversity and inclusion. It's too often in the past been sort of a, not a sideshow, but it's not necessarily been seen as integral to everything that we do in HR. And it should, it should be a golden thread, whether we're talking about resourcing, recruitment, parent reward, or anything else, to learning and so forth. So so that's that's also a very big part of our responsibility, to make sure that we are teaching diversity and inclusion throughout our thinking on HR practices. And then, of course, you know, how we, thirdly, how we encourage the profession to be more diverse. Because, again, if I'm really honest, the profession itself, the HR profession itself, has not always been sufficiently inclusive or, or diverse. And uh, so that's also something which, of course, we want to promote and encourage. more. So HR you know, can be the change it wants to see, you know, to, to quote Gandhi. And, and I think it is true. It should be the change it wants to see. And if the HR profession is advocating for inclusion, then let's show that we as a profession are also inclusive. And finally, also what we as the CIPD represent. I'm always extremely mindful of when I go out and talk about all these different aspects of what good organizations are and how you treat your people and so forth, that we can demonstrate that that for the organization itself. And I'm proud of the fact, actually, that across the CIPD, we can represent inclusion in all its different forms, all the way from the board 
through to every level of the organization. And we continue to champion these ideas. Uh, we continue to measure and understand how diverse we are as an organization. And as I said, I think generally speaking, I'm, I'm pretty proud of what we, we do accomplish across most of the protected characteristics, uh, characteristics of diversity. We have all the internal networks on these things and so on. So we hold ourselves to account as an organization, which also allows me then to talk with a degree of credibility on platforms to say, and if people ask me, so what are you doing? I can say, yeah, we're doing these things as, as the CIBD, and I'd want to hold us up as a, you know, reasonably, positive, a reasonably positive exemplar of all these ideas. Great. Well, thank you. Thanks ever so much, Peter, for joining me on the show today. Before we go, if the person listening to this episode is interested in learning more about the CIPD, uh, first of all, you know, what does the membership of the CIPD involve and how can they get in more information? Yeah, thanks, Toby. I mean, first of all, as you said at the beginning, we're, we're the professional body for HR and people development. So, and we've been around, interestingly, just over 100 years. Um, another interesting fact about our existence is, is we started out as what was known as the Welfare Workers Association, and they, they did what it said on the tin. They worried about the welfare of their employees, and, and it was born out of, uh, interestingly, often Quaker-run businesses, which are still around today, uh, like Roundtree's, Cadbury's, Lever Brothers, which, of course, now Unilever. And, and at the very heart of their thinking was this idea of welfare of the people, and they knew if they looked after their people, they would also be productive and engaged in all those other things. So, as I say, over the intervening uh, 100 years, we've grown a lot. We're now you know, close to 160,000 members. We have international presence in Singapore, Dubai, uh, UK and Ireland. So we have international reach, international membership. Uh, and we really do exist to promote the profession, to promote the practices and thinking of the profession, but also to engage, as I said, in policy and governmental discussion on the future of work and, and, and employment legislation and jobs and market understanding. So if people want to learn more about us, the obvious thing to do is to go to the website. There's huge amounts of information about what we do. We've also been providing a massive amount of support during the coronavirus crisis. Uh, our, our website traffic has tripled. Um, we're seeing you know, very positive uh, support for what we are doing because the final thing to be said in, in, in that regard is that there is a lot of stuff out there, isn't there? I mean, both on how you respond to the coronavirus or any subject, including diversity and inclusion. And I'm proud to, <coughs> proud to say that we are recognized as a trusted source, which we should be. You know, we run as a charity. We're not for profit. We are a professional body and we should be a trusted source. And I think that's part of what we're seeing now. Brilliant. Excellent. Well, thank you ever so much, Peter, for joining me on the show today. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Inclusive Growth Show. And I really look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Until then, thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Inclusive Growth Show. For further information and resources from Toby and his team, head on over to our website at milden.co.uk.